Hornet Heaven, Series 5, Episode 1, The Tribute, written by Ollie Wicken, read by Colin Mace, Earth Season, 2017-18. One afternoon, in the summer of 2017, two long-deceased residents of Hornet Heaven were sitting in the empty Vicarage Road Stadium. Bill Mainwood and Henry Grover were in the upper Graham Taylor stand, gazing out over the magnificent green expanse below them. Bill said, This relayed pitch would grace the Champions League. You're a man with a keen eye for beauty, Henry. Would you say it's the greenest pitch in the entire history of the club? To tell you the truth, Bill, I've still got a soft spot for brown. In the 1960s, the club gave us mud in several fabulous shades. There was moist chestnut in March 1961, congealing coffee in January 1965, and most magnificently, during the championship-winning winter of 1968-69, wet beaver. You mean... You actually preferred soil to grass? Very much so, Bill. I always felt that the raw earth added an exquisite depth and texture, and the thematic consistency with the stadium's surroundings was breathtaking. Thematic consistency? What does that mean? The pitch was basically a continuation of the allotments. Oh, I see. Whenever I arrived on a match day, I half expected to see carrots growing in the rookery goalmouth and rows of purple-sprouting broccoli all the way up to the Vicarage Road end. The look just worked, especially when the football was agricultural too. The old days were the best, Bill. But those pitches must have been terribly difficult to play good football on. Can you imagine the skilled technicians of our current squad having to play on those surfaces? My goodness, I'd love to see Roberto Pereira's thighs caked in mud. To see if he can still play his defence-splitting passes? No, just Roberto Pereira's thighs caked in mud. Bill frowned. He couldn't quite tell if Henry, the man who founded Watford Rovers in 1881, was joking or not. He decided not to inquire and moved the conversation on. Hornet Heaven's head of programme said, You're right to value the past, though, Henry. The new owners may well have made this stadium truly magnificent, but we must never forget the people who built this club from the ground up. The giants, on whose shoulders Gino Pozzo is standing. Quite right, Bill. Absolute giants. Uh, were you, um, referring to me there, by the way? To be honest, Henry, I was actually thinking of someone else. Sorry. No, that's fine, Bill, that's fine, I guess I have to accept my true place in the Watford Pantheon. In which case, 
Henry threw his arms wide towards the vicarage road and rookery stands. Praise be to Jack Petchy. Jack Petchy? The East End taxi tycoon? He's not in the Pantheon. He may well have built two new stands, but he left the soul of the club structurally unsound. Ah, ha, actually I was joking there, Bill, sarcastically making the point that my own contribution is less visible than if you want to praise someone who genuinely transformed this club for the better, then his name is on the front of this very stand. Indeed. The Great Man It's so sad that he passed away so young. And yet, and yet, there's no and yet to the sadness of the great man's passing. But it's just that, well, I don't mean to be insensitive, Bill, but from the very first day he joined us up here, everyone has been going on and on non-stop about what he did for the club. People call him Mr. Watford. But he didn't come along until 96 years after I founded the club. Sometimes I think, well, you can't understate what he did for us. They named a stand after him in his lifetime, and now, in the land of the living, they're creating a statue and holding memorial games. They've never done that for anyone else. That's true. I suppose I just have to recognise that my own role was never... In fact, Henry, we should be doing exactly the same in Hornet Heaven. We should be establishing a lasting commemoration of the great man's achievements. Now there's a project for you. But he's with us up here forever, Bill. He's a lasting commemoration of his achievements. The great man deserves more. In fact, Henry, as... The father of the club, you should definitely be organising some kind of tribute to the most important person in the entire history of the club. Henry winced at the difference between the two titles. He didn't think Bill had meant it as a withering put-down. Maybe his own inconsequence was simply the truth. There's no two ways about it. It's your duty to honour the great man. You need to come up with something... Really very special. Henry didn't feel he could argue with what Bill was saying, but he can't have looked very enthusiastic about the prospect because Bill said, Don't worry, it shouldn't be too difficult. I'll help you come up with something. I know, I'll take you on one of my magical history tours to the great man's greatest games. It'll inspire us. Oh, oh, in fact, I've just had my first idea already. Bill stood up and said, We can't let the great man down. Come on, we're going on a magical history tour. Henry looked up the enormous floodlight pylon and said, are you sure climbing up this thing is a good idea, Bill? No, uh, I'm not, Henry, which is exactly why we're going to give it a go. The two men had fetched programmes from the atrium 
and taken them through the ancient turnstile to go and watch a game from the original Graham Taylor era. They were in the southwest corner, known in those days as The Bend. The stadium looked very different. On their right was the tall shed of the old rookery. On their left was the bright yellow Schrodel stand. They started to climb the huge floodlight pylon in the back corner. A few minutes later, after much puffing and blowing, 92-year-old Bill and 83-year-old Henry had scaled the vertical metal ladder and were clinging tightly to the steel struts of the pylon, just below the light bulbs. Bill gazed across the stadium. What a view, Henry! This is definitely a good idea. You know, you really should open your eyes and take a look. I wish I could open them. I didn't know I suffered from vertigo. Now I realise how Ross Jenkins must feel every day of his life. Zegkar started up over the tannoy, and the Watford players came out. At the far end, the Vicarage Road Terrace produced an explosion of confetti that descended slowly, shimmering in the evening sky. Bill grinned. May the 4th, 1982, was truly one of the greatest Vicarage Road nights ever. A win would put Watford in the top division of English football for the first time in history. As Watford, in yellow and red, and Wrexham, in light blue and dark blue, lined up for kickoff, Bill explained his initial idea for a tribute to the great man. Watching from up the pylon here will be part of a special magical history tour to the most evocative games of the great man's time at the club. It will be called Great Nights Under the Lights. The gimmick is that you be literally under the lights yourself as you watch. What do you think, Henry? Is it a good angle? I'd say it's about 45 degrees too steep. No, I mean the angle I've taken on our tribute to the great man. The special night games. I mean, what a sight this is. The bright lights against the black skies. The shining faces in the crowd. The kit gleaming yellow. Bill was surprised that Henry, Hornet Heaven's greatest Eastleet, didn't seem at all enthusiastic about the vista below them. But when he turned and looked, Bill saw that Henry's eyes were still shut tight. Tighter than Wrexham fans' eyes would be in a few moments' time when Watford's Jan Lohman started flying into tackles. Bill tried a different tack. And think of the games themselves, Henry. Here, on this pitch. Beating Stoke after extra time in the League Cup in 1979. Winning promotion against Hull on that balmy night four months later. The 7-1 over Southampton. The 4-1 over European champions Nottingham Forest eight weeks after that. Then tonight. Then, of course, Kaiser Slouten. Bill checked to see if Henry was looking inspired, but Henry wasn't. Henry was looking as if he might vomit. 
Oh dear. I do hope you develop a head for heights quickly. Just like the club did, under the great man. <laughs> you see, we definitely want you accompanying people during the great nights under the lights tour. It's important that the founder is seen to be honouring the man who made the biggest contribution to the club in history. Henry groaned and spent the game with his eyes closed. He was pretty sure it was the vertigo making him feel sick, but there was another possible cause. Whenever people praised Graham Taylor's contribution to the club, Henry found himself feeling anxious inside. He had been the club's originator in 1881, but it seemed he was no longer the most influential person in Hornet Heaven. He feared people would be starting to think he was a fraud. They'd think he was clinging on to his position as desperately as he was clinging on to this pylon. The last thing Henry wanted was to linger in a role where he'd lost respect. He didn't want to become a Walter Mazzari. He definitely never felt entirely at ease with the title of Father of the Club. During his lifetime on earth, no one had properly traced the formation of Watford Football Club back to Watford Rovers and Henry William Grover. Henry had seen out his life in the town without anyone acknowledging his original role. It had been a surprise to find himself venerated as the club's founder when he passed over to Hornet Heaven in 1949. In the Wrexham game beneath him, in the last minute, Ross Jenkins scored his second to secure Watford a 2-0 win. 20,000 Watford fans sent an ecstatic shout into the night sky. Soon, they started chanting, One Graham Taylor, there's only one Graham Taylor. Bill couldn't stop himself joining in. One Graham Taylor, there's only one Graham Taylor. Meanwhile, Henry clung to the pylon. He marvelled how fans have been singing the great man's name in 1982 and were still singing it 35 years later in 2017. But no one, he reflected, had ever chanted his name. Not once in 136 years. He reached the conclusion that this made his position as father of the club completely untenable. He was, put simply, insignificant. A few moments later, he opened his eyes to watch Watford seal promotion to the top flight for the first time. Steve Sherwood took a goal kick at the rookery end down to Henry's right. The referee in the centre circle blew the final whistle and jumped to catch the ball, but missed it. All the players ran for cover as spectators swarmed onto the pitch from every direction. Luther Blissett, in the number eight shirt, sprinted towards the tunnel, dodging left and right to avoid colliding with the fastest arriving fans. Then Luther disappeared into a tide of delirious yellow. It was a pinnacle moment in Watford's history at the time.
a night of glory, and a night of widespread amazement at how high up the league ladder a small Hertfordshire club had climbed. But now, Henry Grover, the father of the club, watching from up above in 2017, was climbing down the pylon's metal ladder. Bill called out, Henry? What's wrong? Henry didn't answer. He continued his despondent descent. The crowd on the pitch were chanting in praise of a man who'd led the club to the top echelon of English football. In comparison, all Henry had ever done was get permission for a group of pals to play in Casterbury Park in 1881 and bring a football along. In his head, Henry began to compose a letter of resignation. The next day, Henry sat out on the balcony of the gallery restaurant. He hadn't got very far with composing his resignation letter. He'd got stuck on the very first line because he wasn't sure to whom he should be addressing the letter. Should he write, Dear Father of the Club, or Dear Me? He was inclining towards the latter, if only because the phrase, Dear Me, Dear Me, kept running through his mind whenever he contemplated his situation. Now Henry heard the door onto the balcony opening. He turned and saw Bill. This time, Bill was with his young assistant from the programme office, Derek Garston. Mr Grover, sir! Mr Grover, sir! The blue eyes of the soft-faced 13-year-old, who died tragically young in 1921, were sparkling with excitement. I've had a brilliant idea for what the Hornet Heaven tribute to the great man should be, Mr Grover, sir. Henry blanked Derek. He turned back to the pitch. Everyone was continuing to be obsessed with the great man's greatness. It was starting to get his hackles up. Bill and Derek sat down either side of Henry. Bill said, Derek's idea is to hold a Graham Taylor match day, Henry, like they're doing in the land of the living. Well, there's nothing brilliant about that as an idea. Ah, but its brilliance lies in what it would symbolise, Henry. You see, Derek's idea is to stage a game between two teams of Hornet Heaven residents, down there on the real world pitch, playing for the Hornet Heaven Graham Taylor Trophy. One team would be made up of players from the early days of Watford Rovers and the other team would be made up of Watford players from more recent eras. But that wouldn't be a fair contest. The team of more recent players would obviously win. They played at a much higher level. Exactly, Henry. Thereby symbolising the club's transformation over the years. And who oversaw the biggest transformation at Watford? The great man. It would be a wonderful acknowledgement of what he did for us. Wait. 
The players from the Taylor years aren't in Hornet Heaven yet, thank goodness. So the Watford team in this proposed match of yours would have to come from earlier eras. Why does the great man deserve credit for Cliff Holton being an amazing player? What the match actually symbolises is that the club advanced dramatically before the great man arrived. At this point, young Derek gleefully grabbed Henry's sleeve. But that's the complete and utter genius of my idea, Mr Grover, sir. We'd make the great man the manager of the obviously better team, Mr Grover, sir. So all the credit would go to him. Ah, right. I see how that works. But, hang on, who would be the mug who ends up managing the obviously worst team? Derek's eyes sparkled more than ever. You, of course, Mr Grover, sir. You founded the obviously worst team, so you have to manage them. Henry sat back in his seat. He sharply prized Derek's small fingers from his sleeve. He pushed the boy's hand away. It was one thing to have arrived by himself at the sense that he was a trivial footnote in the club's history. It would be quite another to be publicly humiliated for his irrelevance. He said, No, 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 no. But as he was saying it, some of the old Henry Grover fighting spirit began bubbling up inside him. It was the same fighting spirit that had seen him keep the club going during its difficult initial years. The same fighting spirit with which he'd marshaled the Watford Rovers' defence in the rumbustuous early days of association football. Suddenly, he felt up for the challenge. Managing a Watford Rovers team to beat the great man's team was a chance to show everyone, including himself, that he was, after all, a man of influence at Watford Football Club in 2017. No, 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 no problem. He looked Bill Mainwood firmly in the eye and said, Bring it on! Two evenings later, the floodlights were on at Vicarage Road and Henry Grover was sitting in the home dugout. Henry had always had a bit of a thing about the dugout seats. Not just for their striking contours, which for Stefano Akaka he'd noticed last season were really quite figure-hugging, but also for the bold statement of the Watford colour scheme that Henry strongly preferred. Bill Mainwood, who preferred yellow and black, had once suggested that they looked like horrible garish car seats, possibly from a clown car. In reply, Henry had sniffed that they were more likely seats from the first-class section of the metaphorical private jet in which Watford had soared into the Premier League under Gino Pozzo. Henry looked out onto the floodlit arena. The Hornet Heaven Graham Taylor tribute match was about to kick off as a night game on the pristine Vicarage Road turf. 
The stands on all four sides of the stadium were packed with Hornet Heaven residents. There wasn't a spare seat. The place was absolutely rocking. It was already a special Vicarage Road night. Henry got to his feet. He knew the match was all about the great man, but he wanted to make his own mark as well. It was time for Henry Grover, father of the club and manager for the day, to inspire his underdog team. He summoned the Watford Rovers players from their warm-up on the glorious surface. OK, team, gather round. Henry glanced at the other technical area, where the great man himself was already giving a pep talk to his team of Watford legends. The great man, as always in Hornet Heaven, was wearing a black 1979 tracksuit top with wide yellow and red vertical panels. His team had borrowed replica shirts from Watford fans in Hornet Heaven. Tommy Barnett was wearing the classic 1984-85 shirt. Cliff Holton was in the stripy affair from 2015-16. They looked like they meant business. And the great man was in full flow. Henry knew he'd have to pull off something extraordinary to defeat the most important person in the history of the club. Henry turned back and inspected his own men as they assembled on the touchline. In contrast to their opponents, they didn't look at all ready for a sporting contest. With no Watford Rovers replica shirts available, his team were wearing the clothes they'd been buried in. Dark suits and everyday boots. Some were wearing hats. Henry told himself, for possibly the first time in his afterlife, that aesthetics didn't matter. He cleared his throat and said above the noise of the crowd, Now, listen to me, gentlemen, a voice immediately replied. Why should we? Henry groaned silently. He didn't need this. The voice belonged to Freddie Sargent, the cantankerous Watford Rovers forward who had spent his life and afterlife protesting against things he didn't like. From professionalism in the late 19th century to Walter Mazzari in 2017. But Henry didn't back down. He said firmly, You have to listen to me, Freddie, because I'm the manager. What for Rovers never had a manager? Well, we've got one today. Now, as I was about to say, what for Rovers won the Hearts Senior Cup three times without a manager. We'll play far better without one, especially if it's a total novice like you. Being the father of the club doesn't qualify you for anything. I'm not playing under you. Henry could feel his self-esteem shrinking again. He acted swiftly. Right, Freddy, you're dropped. You can't drop me. I was the club's best player, bar none. I'm in charge, Freddy, and I'm not standing for your nonsense. We'll play with ten men. Go back to the dressing room. As Freddy stormed off down the tunnel, Henry wondered if he was doing the right thing. He glanced across at the great man. 
The great man nodded approvingly. Henry felt a huge surge of confidence. He'd impressed the great man. Suddenly, Henry felt he was a world-beater, exactly the way Luther Blissett felt from the very first day Graham Taylor walked through the doors of Vicarage Road. Henry turned back to his team and started to improvise his first ever team talk. Right then, Rovers, you can tell I'm not messing around today. You're going to win me this game without Freddy. Henry noticed several players nodding, notably Alf and Alex Sergeant. He was relieved to see that the remaining two Sergeant siblings were sticking with him rather than Freddy. The Coles brothers nodded too, Walter and Percy. Henry remembered how Watford Rovers had been a true band of brothers in the early days. He felt a surge of pride in his men. I've picked you because you were this club's very first heroes. You led the way for everything that followed. The Sergeant and Coles brothers shook their fists and shouted. And let's be clear about something else. Your opponents today are nothing more than Johnny-come-latelys. None of them have your pioneering courage, your fight. The whole team roared. Now get out there and bring home the Hornet Heaven Graham Taylor Trophy. With another roar, the Watford Rovers team turned and ran to their positions in the rookery half. Henry sat down in the fancy yellow and red seats in the dugout as Bill Mainwood, the referee for the afternoon, blew the whistle to start the match. Henry clenched his fists. He genuinely believed they could win this. 20 minutes later, Henry cut a frustrated figure on the edge of his technical area. His ten-man side were already three goals down. He couldn't blame his team's average age of around 74 because the great man's team had the same average. But he was desperately disappointed by the Watford Rovers' performance. It reminded him of the display of walking football that had been staged at Vicarage Road during the previous season. Not the one put on by middle-aged men at half-time, but the far less lively display of walking football by Walter Mazzari's team at home to Stoke City. Cliff Holton had opened the scoring for Watford with a 40-yard pile driver into the Vicarage Road goal after a knockdown from Dennis Uphill. The crowd had gone crazy at what they saw as a recreation of pretty much every single one of his 48 goals in 1959-60, as they remembered them. Then the homegrown star of the years between the wars, Tommy Boy Barnett, had jinked into the box and been brought down. In the land of the living, Tommy had never been entrusted with the penalty before, despite scoring 163 career goals for the club. Now he'd finally taken his first ever penalty for Watford. He'd dispatched it as if he'd been doing it since 1928. The next goal had come from Charlie White. Watford's sixth highest scorer of all time with 81 league goals. Charlie had mostly played during the Casio Road years, but had scored the last of his goals here at Vicarage Road during the club's very first season at the new stadium in 
95 years later, his low drive put the great man's team three goals ahead. Henry stared down at the immaculate turf at his feet. It looked like his chance to make a proper mark at the club by beating the great man had gone. When he looked up, he saw a yellow-shirted Larry McGettigan, the winger from Watford's particularly useless seasons in the early 1970s, run past the suited and booted Alex Sargent. At the age of 41, McGettigan was younger and fitter than anyone else on the pitch. Henry knew it was all relative, but for the first time ever at Vicarage Road, Larry McGettigan didn't look completely hopeless as he rounded the Rovers' goalkeeper and made it 4-0. The capacity crowd ruled. Henry hadn't anticipated they'd be so strongly in favour of the great man's Watford side. He returned to his seat. He didn't feel like a world-beater anymore. After Rovers gave the ball away from the kick-off and conceded a fifth, Henry moaned to himself. Dear me. Then he continued mentally composing the rest of his resignation letter. Five minutes before half-time, Henry saw Walter Coles, one of Rovers' five forwards, sit down on the turf clutching his calf. Henry had been at a low ebb, but this suddenly incensed him. How could anyone in Hornet Heaven get a muscle injury? They were ghosts. They were plasma or something, not flesh and blood. Henry ran to the edge of his technical area and shouted, You don't get cramp in Hornet Heaven! In the adjoining technical area, the great man recognised the reference and grinned. This time, Henry didn't feel inspired by the great man's approval. He took the grin the wrong way. It looked to him like a smile of superiority. He scowled. A manager who hadn't turned up until 1977 was consigning the founder of the club to eternal anonymity. It wasn't right. Henry's jaw tightened. His defeatism evaporated. He decided he had to do something to get his ten men back in the game. Very quickly, he realised what was necessary. He wasn't sure how he'd do it, or what it would cost him, but it was the only answer. He went down the tunnel to get Freddie Sargent back on the pitch for Watford Rovers. Henry marched into the home dressing room. He came to a sudden halt. He hadn't been here before, and he was immediately taken with the place. He stood and admired the slick black lockers, finished off with a monochrome club badge. He marvelled at the curvature of the black and red padded seats. He'd never seen anything like it. When he'd brought his ball along to Casterbury Park for the very first Watford Rovers kick around in 1881, he'd had to get changed behind a tree. In the far corner, 
Henry saw Freddy Sargent in a red seat in front of a locker, leaning forward disconsolately. Henry galvanised himself. He knew Freddy was the only person who could turn things round on the pitch for Watford Rovers. He had to persuade Freddy to get out there and do the business. He walked past the teacups that had been set out for half-time and said, Right, Freddy, I'm giving you a chance to reprieve yourself. Freddy didn't look up. He kept his head bowed and said, Not interested. Come off it, Freddy. I don't believe that for one moment. A man like you must want to go out there and prove yourself. Freddy didn't answer. Henry stood in front of Freddy and said, Think about it, Freddy. I'm giving you the chance to play for Watford Rovers, something you haven't done for more than a century. Freddy still didn't look up. He said, Arts County Cup semi-final, third replay against Watford St Mary's. 122 years, three months and 18 days ago. There you are. If you've been counting the days, Freddy, you really must take this chance to go out and represent the Rovers again. Freddy lifted his head. All right, then. Henry grinned. He persuaded his star player to play. But then he stopped grinning. There was a look in Freddy's eye that Henry didn't like. I'll play, but on one condition. Henry wasn't ready to back down. Sorry, Freddy, I'm not going to stand down as manager. I'm afraid that's non-negotiable. That's not the condition. Freddy stood up and said into Henry's face, You have to stand down as the father of the club. Right now. Freddy's demand hit Henry hard. His eyes widened. Up to this point, the idea of giving up his role had been his, and his alone. The idea had been that he would resign, on his own terms, because he felt he should. But now someone else was demanding he quit. This was a whole new ball game. You have to go out now, in front of everybody, as father of the club, and sack yourself. Henry felt a tremble enter his hands. Now it entered his heart. He hadn't wanted things to reach this crisis point. His thoughts of resignation had been intended to preempt his falling out of favour before he became unloved in Hornet Heaven. Unloved for eternity. He looked into Freddy's eyes. There was no love whatsoever. Henry's eyes welled up. The room receded as a blur. Over the years, there had been scenes of great joy in the Watford home dressing room. Henry had seen photos in programmes, bottles of champagne foaming, players splashing in the communal bath, 
John Barnes wearing ghastly white briefs. These have been moments of exuberant celebration. This moment, right now, was definitely not one of those. Henry felt for a seat and sat down. He was feeling dazed, but not too dazed to notice, through the teardrops, that he was in a black seat. He shifted into a red one. Even when all felt lost, expressing the correct colour preference still mattered to him. He heard Freddy say, Look at you, Grover. You're a loser. And nothing. Do you know how you're remembered in the land of the living? You get a mention on a neglected family gravestone in Vicarage Road Cemetery, a new arrival told me about it. Right at the bottom it says, Also, Henry William Grover. Passed away March 22nd, 1949, aged 83. Nothing else. You're just a postscript on a forgotten headstone. Henry replied weakly. Is, is, is that all? Also, Henry William Grover? You're an also ran. That's all you're worth out there, in the real world. Henry stared across the dressing room. His eyes cleared a little when tears finally ran down his cheeks. It was almost as if this news about his grave was helping him see his whole situation more clearly than ever. He stood up, unsteadily. Thank you for telling me, Freddy. I'll, I'll, I'll go and tell everyone I'm not, not worthy to be the father of this club. Head bowed, Henry made his way back to the door. A few steps later, he sensed something ahead of him just beyond the doorway. He looked up. In the tunnel, players in yellow shirts were filing past on their way to the other dressing room. In front of them stood a man in a black 1979 tracksuit top. The great man. The great man was frowning. He didn't like what he'd just witnessed. Henry stopped. He swallowed. He stared at the great man. Something came over him. Like dozens of people before him, he wanted to please the great man. The great man raised his right hand and pointed at something to the side of Henry. Henry turned and looked. He saw the set of half-time teacups. He thought he knew what the great man meant, but when he turned back to check... The great man had gone. Henry felt the same surge of confidence he'd felt earlier. If the great man had told him to do it, it was what he had to do. Without a moment's hesitation, he grabbed a teacup, he launched it. It smashed against the black locker behind Freddy's head. Henry marched back across the floor and said, Right, 
I'm father of the club, Freddy Sergeant, and that isn't going to change. It's you that needs to change. Freddy, startled, toppled back down into his seat. Henry stood over him. This football club has values. It always has done, ever since day one in Casabury Park. Henry heard the sound of boots on the floor of the dressing room behind him. But he didn't stop speaking. This club stands for respect for others. Hard work, teamwork, generosity of spirit. You've shown none of those today. Henry heard voices behind him. Murmurs of agreement. You need to change, Freddy Sergeant. If you can't live and breathe this club's values, your soul won't truly belong in Hornet Heaven. Henry felt an arm around his left shoulder. He felt another around his right shoulder. He looked in both directions and saw that his players had formed a tight line either side of him. Standing tall. Standing strong. Standing with the father of the club. Freddy Sargent looked up and down the line. He saw nothing but solidarity. He nodded. He got to his feet. He said, Right. How many do you need me to score? The Watford Rovers players, to a man, roared and headed straight back out of the dressing room to warm up for the second half. The second half of the Hornet Heaven Graham Taylor tribute match was extraordinary. It was definitely far more exciting than anything Watford fans had seen so far in 2017 while Walter Mazzari was in charge. Throughout the half, Henry stood on the edge of his technical area and watched his hopes of becoming a Watford hero by managing an inferior team to victory over the great man dramatically resuscitated. First, he saw Freddy Sargent dispossess Larry McGettigan, shrug off a challenge from Arthur Woodward and fire past Skilly Williams into the roof of the rookery net for Rovers' first goal. Henry clenched his fists and muttered, That's more like it. Then he saw Freddy Sargent's shoulder charge the big fella to win the ball, nutmeg Tommy Barnett and chip Skilly Williams from 30 yards. Henry punched the air and shouted, Get in, you beauty! Then Freddy left Taffy Davis, Morris Cook and George Catlow in his wake on a mazy dribble that ended with him rounding Watford's podgy keeper for a hat-trick. Henry sang deliriously, have my baby, have my baby, have my baby, Freddy Sargent. After that, Freddy created goals for others. The crowd knew they were seeing something special. They began cheering every Watford Rovers touch. Henry was overjoyed. Freddy Sargent was showing all the values Henry had asked for. Respect for others, hard work, teamwork, generosity of spirit. With a minute to go, Watford Rovers levelled the scores at 7-7. The crowd's roar was like a crack of thunder. Henry sprinted down the touchline towards the rookery end and did a knee slide all the way to the corner flag, screaming with joy. When he got back, still elated, 
he saw his team win the ball back from the kickoff and give it to Freddie Sargent. Henry waved his team forward, manically. He was just one goal away from beating the great man, one goal away from historic relevance. Henry watched as Freddie played a 1-2 with his brother Alec. Further up the pitch, Freddie played another 1-2 with his brother Alf. Freddie moved into the penalty box. He was drawing back his right foot to shoot when he was clattered from behind by George Catlow. Henry screamed, Penalty! Penalty! Bill Mainwood pointed to the spot. Yes! Yes! Henry punched the air. The crowd roared. Henry turned to face the fans in the Sir Elton John stand and did a little dance in his technical area. And when it rains, you're shining down for me. And I just can't get enough. I just can't get enough. Just like a rainbow, you know you set me free. And I just can't get enough. I just can't get it. But when Henry turned back to face the pitch, suddenly he didn't feel like dancing anymore. Freddie Sargent was limping off the pitch with a ball in his hands. I can't go on, Henry. What? How can you be injured? It's not possible. Henry began to fret. Freddie was the only Watford Rovers player he fancied to score from the spot. He wasn't totally sure the others would know what to do. For the first ten years of the club's existence, the penalty kick hadn't been invented. Henry surveyed the pitch, trying to work out who should take the penalty. Percy Coles saw Henry looking at him. He started clutching his hamstring and shaking his head. Mystery injuries started appearing all over the pitch. Alex Sargent suddenly started rubbing his knee. Alf Sargent fell to the turf in apparent agony, both hands around his ankle. Freddie said, There's nothing for it, Henry. You'll have to come on as a substitute and take the penalty yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Me? <laughs> but I haven't played since our 3-2 win over Uxbridge Caxtonians in the Hennessy Cup second round in December 1889. We need you, Henry. <laughs> but I was always terrible. I was only in the team because I brought along the ball. That's not true. It is. I didn't play in the first half earlier, when we had ten men, because my presence would have made it seem more like nine men. Or eight. Or seven. Freddy pressed the ball into Henry's hands and said, Get on now, and score the winning goal. Henry stood on the touchline, holding the ball, terrified. The crowd realised what was going on. From all four sides of the stadium, they yelled encouragement. Henry stepped tentatively onto the pitch and made his way slowly and nervously towards the rookery end goal. Henry tried to visualise what he would do. The penalty kick may not have been invented until after he'd hung up his football boots, but over the years, he'd seen plenty of Watford players succeed in this very goal. For a moment, he wondered whether to try and emulate the finesse of Keith Eddy. In the end, he decided to go for the brute force of Troy Deeney against Manchester United last season. Henry arrived at the penalty spot. 
he placed the ball and looked up. The portly figure of Skilly Williams in front of him seemed to fill the entire goal. Henry took five paces back. The noise of the crowd willing him to score was almost deafening. He tried to shut it out. He polished the toe of his right boot on the left calf of his suit trousers. He started his run-up. He struck the ball. The back of the net ballooned. 8-7 to Watford Rovers. What happened next was all a bit of a blur for Henry. Maybe because of the tears in his eyes. Maybe because he just couldn't process the joy. He was aware of Freddie Sargent sprinting onto the pitch to celebrate with his teammates. None of them with any sign of injury after all. He was aware of ecstatic fans swarming down from the stands and onto the pitch. He was aware of being lifted above the crowd's heads and finding himself crowd surfing back towards the dugouts, all against a backdrop of astonishing noise. He'd never seen anything like it, heard anything like it, or felt anything like it in the 136-year existence of the club. After the match, there was a presentation of the trophy. There were still thousands of fans on the pitch, but they made space for Bill Mainwood to perform the ceremony on the touchline in front of the Sir Elton John stand. Bill stood with the two managers, Henry and the great man, either side of him. As the three men waited for the crowd to quieten down, Henry noticed the great man was having a discreet word in Bill's ear. Bill was nodding. Soon, Bill addressed everyone in Hornet Heaven. Holding the silver cup, he said, Ladies and gentlemen, girls and boys, it's time for the presentation of the Graham Taylor Trophy. The crowd applauded. Except that, actually, it isn't. Henry was still finding things a bit blurry, but this got his attention. He didn't understand. What I mean is, there's been a bit of a last-minute change. This game wasn't for the Graham Taylor Trophy after all. Henry frowned. He absolutely didn't understand. You see, it's been decided to rename the trophy in honour of a man who hasn't been honoured enough over the years. Now, Henry knew what was coming. He felt a tremble entering his hands and heart again. But a good one this time. He saw Bill glance at the great man, and the great man nod. Today's match was, in retrospect, the inaugural tribute match to the original Mr Watford. It was the first annual Henry Grover match day, playing for the Henry Grover Trophy. The thousands of Hornet Heaven residents on the pitch and in the stands roared their approval. Henry welled up. He whispered to himself, Dear me, dear me, 
This time, it wasn't the start of a letter. As the crowd cheered, Bill passed Henry the cup. Henry took it and looked out over the sea of happy Hornet Heaven faces. He held it aloft. The crowd cheered even louder. At first it was just a near-splitting mess of noise, but slowly it took shape. It coalesced. It became a single, forceful, exuberant chant. They sang... One Henry Grover, there's only one Henry Grover. One Henry Grover, there's only one Henry Grover. An hour later, Henry hadn't left the scene of the great turnaround. He was sitting in the home dugout, relaxing with his hands behind his head and his legs stretched out either side of the Henry Grover trophy on the ground in front of him. Bill Mainwood was with him. Henry said, You know, Bill, today has been marvellous. It was just what I needed. Well, I feel a bit bad for not realising you've been having so many doubts about your position as father of the club, Henry. I was a proper silly Billy. Don't blame yourself, Bill. Everyone knows from the Bassett and Viali managerial disasters that the great man was a difficult act to follow, but it wouldn't have occurred to anyone that he's also a difficult act to proceed. Henry felt it was time to move on. He got to his feet and picked up the trophy. Bill got up too. They turned and started walking slowly towards the tunnel. So you're feeling in a better place now? Definitely, Bill, and I know my place now. The great man is definitely the most important person in the entire history of the club. There's no debate about that, whatever happened on the pitch today. He is also undoubtedly the most wonderful human being in the entire history of the club. His generosity in suggesting that the trophy and match day be renamed in my honour was remarkable, yet typical. We're all in his shadow, Bill. I'm lucky that once a year in Hornet Heaven, for eternity, my name will be just a little in the limelight. Bill nodded as they entered the tunnel. Henry summarised. I'm content with a passing mention, just like on my gravestone. Bill didn't get the reference to the gravestone. He carried on walking down the tunnel. But Henry stopped for one last look back at the arena. It was silent now. Henry gazed at the pitch as it lay waiting for the events of 2017-18 to unfold on its flawless expanse. He gazed at the yellow, red and black seats that were ready to welcome fans who would once again be experiencing moments that would become memories for the rest of their lives and afterlives. And finally, he gazed at the Graham Taylor stand on the far side, a permanent reminder in concrete of the man who would always be, for eternity, unarguably, the real Mr Watford. Henry smiled. He said quietly to himself, Also, 
Henry William Grover and followed Bill down the tunnel. End of episode one. The next episode of Hornet Heaven will be series five, episode two. Hornet Heaven was created and written by Watford fan Ollie Wicken. It was read by Watford fan Colin Mace. It was produced by Watford fan John Mooney. Music by Watford fans Steve Joy and Jeff Wicken. <laughs>